Once again this morning, I direct your attention to John's Gospel in the fourth chapter. Gospel of John, chapter 4, reading again verses 23 and 24. John 4, 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, grant to us now what we so desperately need, the work of your spirit, that we would rightly now hear, understand, and apply this, your word. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been considering the matter of worship. What does it mean to worship? What are we talking about when we speak of worship? Far too often in our sinful self-centeredness, we tend to ask the wrong questions even when it comes to worship. We want to ask, was it enjoyable? And we should be asking, what does God expect of us? We, we ask the question, did I have a good time? When we ought to be asking, did the Lord's name get honored. Cornelius Plantiga, a theologian, wrote this, and I, I think this goes back actually to the 90s, and I would be curious what he might say today as he writes about some of these things. If we know the characteristic sins of the age... We can guess its foolish and fashionable assumptions. That morality is simply a matter of personal taste. That all silences need to be filled up with human chatter or background music. That 760% of the American people are victims. You are paying attention. I just wanted to see. That it's better to feel than to think that rights are more important than responsibilities, that even for children the right to choose supersedes all other rights, that real liberty can be enjoyed without virtue, that self-reproach is for fogies, that God is a chum or even a gopher whose job is to make us rich or happy or religiously excited, that it's more satisfying to be envied than respected, that it's better for politicians and preachers to be cheerful than truthful that Christian worship fails unless it's fun. Ow. That Christian worship fails unless it's fun. We've considered at some length the difference in worship is expressed in the terms of the new covenant as opposed to the Mosaic legislation. We considered a change in place in mediator and practice. This morning I want to expand on this difference and what it means for our thinking about and our practice of worship. Now keep in mind, some of these things are settled quite clearly by the text. 
Jesus says the whole geographical debate is now superseded. It's not about location anymore. True worship is now in spirit and truth. And because we have too narrowly at times defined worship, we've confused ourselves and created crises where there probably didn't need to be any. If by worship we mean a gathering like this, then we've reduced the New Testament definition to a sacred time and a sacred space. The very thing Jesus says is no longer true. We've also misled people into thinking this is really all there is to Christian life. You know, you go to church and you try to be good. If by worship we mean only private devotional practices, then we've ignored that in the New Covenant my devotional practice is only as useful as the life it produces as I live my life before God in every aspect. We've also ignored the early church had gathered meetings. If by worship we only mean singing and praying, that is everything we did up to this point was worship. And then when I got up, that's it. then we have misled ourselves into thinking that the speaking of the Word of God together and the hearing of the Word of God together is a spectator sport. We've missed the point. It's also participatory. If by worship we only mean being emotionally engaged, then we've made sentimentality the apex of worship. And in that elevation, we've actually shrunk it. Now here I think Piper's spot on again when he says where feelings for God are dead, worship's dead. I would tend to agree with that. We are to be motivated. There is to be emotion as we engage in worship. I think sometimes Baptists, we're, we're, we're peculiar critters. Have you figured that out? We're a little weird. Because we don't want to be as stuffy as some of our more liturgical brethren. But our more free-wheeling Pentecostal friends scare us to death. And we're not exactly sure where to land in between what we consider to be two extremes. I hope to address that in some fashion later but if worship is again to quote J.I. Packer the deliberate lifting of one's eyes from man and his mistakes to contemplate God and his glory then how do we go about doing that we do it in terms certainly of the new covenant we do Christian worship but is that more important to do it individually Or is it more important to do it corporately? And how do you balance that? Is what we have here today merely the gathering of some, say, 275 to 300 people, and all of us are out here doing our private devotional practice individually, we just happen to be doing it at the same time and in the same room? I don't think that's what we're saying. And if it is, we've really misunderstood this thing. But, my friends, that's not to say that individual worship doesn't matter. 
For we shall each stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us has to at some point give an account of ourselves to God. He saves us individually. But not merely to be Lone Ranger Christians. We create false dichotomies in worship, especially if we set up private versus public as being opposed to one another. For you see, Christ makes us worshipers of God individually and as a community. Notice where we start here in John chapter 4. The Lord seeks worshipers, plural. That at least takes in the individuals, but more than that, it includes the entire community. So let's consider for a moment what it means to be an individual worshiper. Now, let me say a quick aside here. We have several folks this morning, guests, first-time people. This is not typically the pattern of preaching. Usually I start at the beginning of a book, preach through the end of the book. This is more what I term theological preaching. So pay attention to see if I actually obey the context, because if I don't, I've messed up. I don't think I've messed up, but you can be the judge thereof. What do we talk about when we speak of individual worship? Worshiping individually. I believe again Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives us a way to think about this. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, worshiping God is living the whole of your life before Him in Christ as a living sacrifice. This is definitional, in essence, to the meaning of being Christian. It's living the whole of your life before God. Coram Deo. God's watching. And we do it as a living sacrifice. Paul comes to the end of this mind-boggling and masterful exposition of the gospel in Romans that ultimately leads him to this place at chapter 12, 1 and 2. Up to this point, Paul's not had a whole lot of imperatives for us. He's not had a lot to tell us to do, a few things along the way, but for the most part, he's simply declaring what is true. He talks about the extent of our sinfulness, the grace of God's provision for us in Christ's death, that we are justified by grace through faith, that we are at peace with God in reconciliation, that being crucified with Christ and raised with Christ, we are united with Him. He tells us we are dead to sin. He tells us we are dead to the law. He says we are declared righteous. That the Holy Spirit has been granted, given to us. That we've been adopted into the family. That we've been given certain hope of a future resurrection. That we are recipients of this overcoming love of God. What shall separate us from the love of God? And he goes down the list and he says, nothing. There is no possibility because there's no one greater than God. And he has done all of this for us in Christ Jesus. 
being assured he is satisfied with us in Christ, being chosen by his sovereign good pleasure, being grafted into the people of God. That's us. Now, Christian, hear what I'm saying. If you don't lay hold of this, everything else seems like miserable duty. Just a lot of stuff to check off on a list. God, do this. God, do that. God ain't going to be happy if I don't do this and do that, so i got to do this and do that. And pray, yeehaw, Christian living. Some of you are miserable because you don't think. I'm sorry, was that too blunt? Well, let's rephrase it. Some of you are miserable because you haven't thought the right things. You haven't thought God's thoughts after Him. And because of that, you get in trouble. But you see, friend, when you understand, as our brother prayed in the prayer of confession, the quotation from Romans 3, we're all in sin, we're doomed. And the only hope we have is the glorious, majestic intervention graciously of our God to rescue us through Christ. And it's through what He's done. We are now justified. We're declared not guilty. But I'm guilty. That's right, you are. But you're declared not guilty. And when you're declared not guilty, well, if I'm declared not guilty, then maybe I don't have to do anything good. Oh, but you missed something. You have been united with Christ. And in that union, you died to sin. And in that death, sin no longer has dominion over you. You get that, Christian? You don't have to sin. I'm not saying you won't. I'm saying you don't have to. And not only that, we're under no condemnation. The love of God's going to triumph. It's all what he's done. Now, in light of that, children, in light of all that, that's, that's why it's dangerous to preach Romans 12 without having preached chapters 1 through 11 first. Because sometimes preachers don't play fair. Chapter 12, 1 and 2 doesn't make sense without chapters 1, 1 through 11, 36. I think it is, 33, 36, somewhere in there. In light of that, present your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. How? The renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By what God has told you. Discern His will. Obey Him. Worship, then, is a result of regeneration. You were dead. Now you're alive. Worship is a result of justification. You were guilty. Now you're righteous. It's a result of reconciliation. You were an enemy, now you're a friend. It's a result of adoption. You were a stranger, now you're his child. Personal worship is the presenting of myself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to the Lord. And Paul says that's reasonable. It's reasonable. 
because what he tells us in the first 11 chapters. So individual worship is first. Living the whole of your life before him in Christ as a living sacrifice. But it's also this. It is praising God because of a new identity. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, now you have received mercy. And why do you do that? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Peter's words are rooted in the book of Hosea. You recall the story surrounding Hosea, right? Somewhere in the sovereign plan of God, Hosea marries an unfaithful wife. I have to call her Gomer. Because if I say Gomer, I think about a sitcom from the 60s. And it's just weird. She was a living illustration of the faithlessness of Israel. Even their children are named in light of her faithlessness. Firstborn son, Jezreel, a reminder of a bloody, rebellious past. And then two daughters. Now, how would you like to name your girls this? Lo-Ruamah. Lo-Ami. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. No mercy. Not my people. Mm. God promised to redeem them and restore them. That promise finds its fulfillment in Christ. Once you weren't a people, now you are. Once you'd not received mercy, now you have. And because of that, Christian, here again is identity, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may declare, proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into marvelous light. See, some of you are miserable this morning about the whole Christian thing because you don't see it as deliverance, you see it as bondage. And that tells me, my friend, you don't know Christ. If you see Christianity as chains and bondage and misery, then you're sensing something that is not true in any way, shape, or form. What the gospel has done is liberate us. It has freed us. It has given us a new identity. So that no matter what happens, I know who I am in Christ. Friend, if you can't find joy in that, maybe it's time to examine whether or not you know Jesus. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people who belong to God. I know some of you say, well, well, you didn't tell me what I ought to do in my private worship. What Bible do I use? And what Bible reading program? And what prayer guide? And what devotional book? And how long should I do it? And is it more sanctified early in the morning? Well, I want to say it is, but that's because I'm an early riser and it makes me feel better about my own. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a devotional life. But my friend, your devotional life 
ought to flow out of who you are. It ought to remind you of who you are. And by the way, can I let you in on a little secret about your devotional life? If the words I, me, and my show up too much, I don't think you're doing it right. Now why would you say that, preacher? Because when Jesus is asked about praying, huh? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. My friends, hear those words. I'm not saying you don't have personal sins to confess. I'm not saying that it's ever wrong for it to be me, I, my. I'm saying, my friend, that even in our private devotional life, we are to think about brothers and sisters with whom we are acquainted. It ought to be about more than just me. Some of you are dying in your Christian living because you are so accursedly self-centered. It's all about you. And I'm here to tell you it's not. Now, how does that impact corporate worship? I can recall when I, in my teens, the first time I'd ever heard him talk about a personal devotional life. It, I'm not saying it never was said. I'm just saying I, until I became a Christian, I'd never heard such a thing. So I'm big on this idea of some version of thoughtfully engaging with what it means to be a Christian of thoughtfully engaging in confession and repentance and prayer and taking in God's Word. But my friends, you and I are also to do this corporately. That is, we worship not just individually, we worship in community. Is there, in essence, the question, what we're doing this morning, is there any validity to it? Yes, there is. So there's all sorts of instructions about the elements involved. We know the early church met together, and there were, there were things they did which were seen as good and proper in community. Now, if you doubt this for a moment, let me make this very clear. When Jesus refers to the church giving instruction about sinning Christians, the passage on church discipline, he will say in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he, he's exhorting them about their practices of the Lord's table, which were stunningly bad. People were coming and some of them had money and some of them didn't. Some brought a feast, others had nothing. And the folks that had the money and had the food would go off by themselves, apparently, this is the picture, and they'd eat all their food and call that the Lord's Supper. And some of them brought wine and they'd get drunk. And Paul actually says this, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. How would you like to have an apostle tell you that about your church gathering? <laughs> when you get together, it's just bad. It isn't good for anybody. 
So what is going on? Why, why am I landing on the idea this isn't just all of us doing our private personal devotion? Because, my friends, we are told to do these things together. And we'll explore the elements of these things. But both in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and Colossians, third chapter, he'll say things like speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. I don't have time to unpack that today, but can I point out that both corporate, community, and individual is there. Speaking to one another, that's the community, in your hearts making melody, that's the individual. There is a horizontal element to this. Together we come together is what Paul will call in Philippians the third chapter, the colony of heaven. We are no longer distinguished by race, class, gender, or other social status. My friends, please, please hear me when I say this. Leave it at the door when you get together. Leave it at the door when it comes to your politics or your party. Leave it at the door when it comes to uh, other issues that separate us out here in the world. I'm not saying we can't speak to those things, but my friends, your identity, my identity together is the people of God. We are the church of the living God. And all those other affiliations are out the door. Let me show you something. Come with me again back to the book of Revelation. We started there recently. I'm sorry, not to do eschatology. But talk about worship. I know some of you are terribly disappointed. You can't wait to explain to me why I'm wrong on eschatology. Lord willing, you'll be given that opportunity at some point. Revelation, the fourth chapter. Let me point something out. Let's just look at this together for a few minutes. John tells us, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which had heard speak, I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow and it had the appearance of an emerald and around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is a magnificent image, picture of glorious worship in heaven. Would you agree? When you read this, there's a part of you that trembles just a little bit, right? Okay? Now, let me stop for just a second. Can I point something out about the fourth chapter? There is nothing particularly Christian about the fourth chapter by itself. In fact, you could almost say that the fourth chapter here looks an awful lot like the sixth chapter of Isaiah. Right? And folks, I'm not criticizing, I'm just asking you, observe. So there's worship here, but there's nothing peculiarly Christian about it until you get to the fifth chapter. And let me point something else out. When John wrote it, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. You just kept reading. That's what we see is verse 11, chapter 4. You went straight into chapter 5, verse 1. There's no, there's no break, and I, I don't want you to think of this as a break. I'm just telling you that as you read it up to this point, there's nothing that shouts at you. This is different than anything seen in the Old Testament till you get to chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And notice this ninth verse. And they sang a new song. Nathan, here's your justification for new music. Okay. They sang a new song. Why? Something new has happened. 
What's the new thing? The lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David, the branch of Jesse. <laughs> Work that out sometime. The root of David, the branch from Jesse. Mm. And what is the shift in the song? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Wow! There's an echo here, is there not? What does Peter say about us? Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God. What's the new song say? You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices first of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. And worship. The Lamb appears. The Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is the conqueror. The Lamb is between the throne and the elders. The Lamb's greatness provokes worship. And it is a worship that echoes throughout all of heaven, down onto earth and under the earth, because as Paul says, the day will come when every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess. And what is that confession? Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know. Okay, Doug. That heavenly glory thing looks really good. I like the idea of being a part of that worship service. But what we do down here, how does that have any impact? Again, it's identity. Hebrews chapter 12. This will be the last place we go. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. The author of Hebrews says, You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come. Now listen to this, Christian. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christian, in our gathered worship, we are to worship out of this glorious new identity. We ought to have an eye toward heaven based on Revelation 4 and 5. We ought to have an eye, in a sense, all the way back to Sinai with this reminder. I know some of you thought, oh, I just wish I could have been there at Sinai and seen God come down on the mountain. That would just been wonderful. Or I wish I could have been there when the Lord came down on the tabernacle. Or when the Lord filled the temple. I just wish I could have seen that. My friend, you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The law came by Moses, yes. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Seeing Him in the Gospel is the greatest display of the glory of God that you shall ever know. Short of that beatific vision when we come to the end and we see Him as He is for that shall be our transformation. But friend, when we gather together we do it again as this identity. An identity that gathers us, that changes all the other relationships. I don't know about you, but over the course of my life, I've had to get over some things that weren't good. I I had to get over some judgmentalism about other people. I had to get over some personality quirks that were annoying. Had to get over the fact that some of us don't agree about some stuff. Why? Because all of that should fade into oblivion when it comes to the matter of meeting the Lord Jesus at the cross and in worship before the throne. Because all that stuff goes away. At the end. Christian, you are to worship. Yes, privately. I say this to you with as much joy as I can muster in my heart. Whether you're having a personal devotional worship, whether you're shopping for this week's groceries, whether you're doing your job, caring for your kids, mowing the yard, commuting somewhere. Can I say this to you based on 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all that stuff for the glory of God. All of it. Well, I don't like my job. Well, go to the job you don't like and do it for the glory of God. I'm frustrated with my kids. We'll be frustrated with your kids to the glory of God. I'm annoyed with my spouse. You hear the rest, right? Fill in the blank. And when you gather for corporate worship and you're tired, distracted, depressed, discouraged, delighted, excited, don't much care, do it for the glory of God. 
This is our calling. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Private worship, you bet. Public worship, absolutely. Us together as the people of God. And you see, folks, our hope in that. And I say this, some of you here today may not be Christian. That's all right. I'm glad you're here. I really am. Because what I'm hoping is in all of this that the Lord has, by His Spirit, gotten your attention. And suddenly, this stuff's more interesting. You have questions. Or, or maybe He's just opened your eyes and you just say, oh my word, I am as lost as I could be. I'm doomed. And I'm here to affirm, yes, you are. Cry out to Jesus and He will save you. Believe in Him and find life everlasting. Our Father, 